Those lilies smell really good. I don't know if you can smell them, but I can. I used to grow those very <laughs> kinds of flowers when I had a yard. Um, we're at 1 Timothy 3 this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn there. I was reading an interesting story this week about the pelicans of Monterey, California. And uh, these were birds who came to love Monterey because there was uh, a big fishing industry there. And as the fishermen would throw out all the spare parts of the fish, um, the pelicans would come. And it became kind of a pelican mecca where the pelicans would just come and just gorge themselves. And they became fat and they became lazy and they became very well fed. Well... After a time, uh, the fishermen discovered that they could actually utilize the parts, and uh, they were sold for fertilizer and other things, probably cat food, who knows, but uh, they could sell the parts. And um, so the, the fishermen began to save them instead of throw them out to the pelicans. Well, the pelicans had been fed for so long that they had forgotten how to fish. And so soon the pelicans begin to starve, and many of them starved to death waiting for someone to give them something to eat. And the solution to the problem was rather simple. The fish and game just came down here and down south a little bit and uh, found some pelicans who knew how to fish, captured them, took them up to Monterey, let them go, and the pelicans who knew how to fish began to fish, and the other ones saw their example And they began to fish, and the famine was ended. Well, in like manner, many Christians in the church today are starving for a good example. They need somebody to look at to see what it means to be a Christian. We are called to be like Christ. I mean, that's what Christian means, little Christ. We are called to be his Ambassadors, we are called to be his representatives, we are called to be his soldiers, we are called to be his people, we are called to be his slaves, we are called to be his priests, and people need to see what that means. And why we are all called to live godly lives, leaders must live godly lives. If they're going to be leaders, they have to be examples. Jesus taught this to the disciples. In the upper room, remember the story, he tells the disciples he's going to wash their feet. And, and Peter says, hey, you are not going to wash my feet. Now that's an interesting thing to tell God Almighty. And the reason Peter didn't want Jesus washing his feet is that that was something a slave did. That was somebody, something somebody did that was at the bottom of the social food chain. You just don't wash people's feet when you're the Lord. You get your feet washed if you're the Lord. And so Peter says, listen, You are not washing my feet. And Jesus said, okay, Peter, you don't have any part in the kingdom if you don't let me wash your feet. Okay, wash them. You can wash my whole body. (laughs) And then Jesus 
said this, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I gave you an example so that you should do as I did to you. What is that? Take the low road. Be the servant. Be humbled. Be willing to serve in the lowest capacities other people for their needs, for their good, for their benefit. Paul told the Philippians this in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Brethren, I want you to find people who are godly and I want you to follow them as you see them doing what you have seen us model. If you were to look over at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, you would read this. Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Timothy, as a leader, I want you to be an example. Peter tells the elders this in 1 Peter 5, 3. He tells them to prove to be examples among the flock. Leaders are leaders because they are examples. Not because they boss people around. Not because they lord it over people. Not because they have power and influence. It's because they have example. Spurgeon said this, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Mark Twain said, quote, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. I like that. I mean, I, I live in a family where, you know, I, we have eight, eight kids. I'm the youngest. I'm the baby. And, and half of us know Christ and the other half don't. And my mom and dad don't. And when I, I get around my family, um, they know I'm a pastor. And um, they're scared to bring up anything that relates to the Bible or morality around me. And, you know, I can't help it, but, you know, if abortion comes up, I'm going to tell them what the Word says. If lying comes up, I'm going to tell them what the Word says. I just have to do it. And they know that. And so just being around them makes them be annoyed. (laughs) I mean, they, they can, they, it's really interesting. I come into the room and I don't know what they're talking about, but they quit. <laughs> and really, everybody needs to be that way. Our lives need to be so focused on God, so focused on His Word, so unflinchingly 
committed to the standard of God's truth that when we get around unbelievers, they can see it. They can feel it. They know where we're at. And of all the people in the church, the leaders need to carry the torch in this way, showing a godly example and godly priorities and godly commitment and compliance to the Word of God. As we look at 1 Timothy, we're working our way through this section on church leaders, what they're supposed to be. I mean, he's talked about... uh, Praying, he's talked about women's roles, he's talked a little bit about men's roles, and he gets back and he says, listen, just because the men uh, are required by God to lead, it's not just any man, but a certain kind of man with certain gifts and certain moral qualities that he has to possess. These are must-be things he has to possess. And Paul, you see, he sent Timothy to Ephesus. Ephesus was the church that Paul had started It has spent three years there, pouring his life into it, trying to get it founded. Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos were all there, and Tychicus. I mean, these were people of quality who had been poured into this Ephesian church. And so as soon as Paul leaves, he gets thrown into a prison, and now he's out of prison, but he doesn't have time to come to Ephesus and fix everything. And so he sends Timothy there. And he wants Timothy to appoint qualified leaders. Paul knew that savage wolves had already crept in. He knew that perverse men had arisen among themselves teaching strange doctrines. And Paul knows that the most fundamental thing that must happen is that quality leadership must be in place if the church is going to survive in Satan's territory. In addition to this, Timothy is unsure of himself. He was starting to step backward. By nature, he was timid. He was not confrontational. He was sickly. He felt outclassed and out-educated among some of the, the Greek rhetoricians. He probably wished that Paul would just come back and just, can't you just come back and, you know, do some miracles and whip him into shape? And just fix it all. So it can be easy on me, and then I'll pastor the church. Yet the easy way out was not God's plan. It usually is not. God likes to take us through trials, not to preserve us from them. He likes us to trust him in them, not just keep us away from trials. And while we are all called to live godly lives, and all called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received, elders need to be there. It doesn't mean they have to be perfect, but they have to be qualified people who are characterized by the things in the text before us. And so as we come to this text, I just want to remind you that these qualities here are necessary because they are what will provide the example for the entire congregation to follow. As the leaders of the church submit to this, then the church can submit to them because they, like Paul, would be following Christ. So in order to help Timothy bear up under trial, he says, get some qualified leaders, 
and make sure they have these characteristics. And so if you have your Bible, you can follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy 3. He says this, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Here we see the first really concentrated section about a leader's home, one who manages his household well. Now, we've already seen in the husband of one wife how a leader would treat his wife, and so we aren't going to get into that today in any detail, but we want to look at what this means to manage one's household well and have children who are under control with all dignity. Paul addresses the normal case that most men who do not have the gift of singleness would be men who would get married and they'd probably have kids. He's not saying that all elders must be married and must have children here. He's just saying, I'm addressing the normal case. And if they do have a wife and if they do have a household and if they do have children, this is what we need to expect of them. We know that the purpose of examining a man's home here is to see if he is fit to lead the church. There is a progression here from something lower to something higher. Something, you have your home, now you have the church. The lesser responsibility, the greater responsibility. And so that's why he does that. We know that from verse 5 where he says, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, there's the lesser. How will he take care of the church of God? There's the greater responsibility. And the polite answer is, he can't. He cannot manage the household of God if he can't manage his own household. If he can't take care of his own family, he can't take care of God's family. If he can't manage God's household, he can't manage the church. If he doesn't love his wife, how can he love the bride of Christ? If he has not trained his children to be obedient and self-controlled, how can he train the members of the church to be obedient and self-controlled? It is simple as that. And the implied answer is he can't. If he can't do it at home, he can't do it at the church. Now, the word manage might also be translated to rule or have charge over, to superintend, to lead, or preside over. And any man qualified to lead the church has to be one who rules or manages or presides over his family well. That's all Paul's saying here. The word manage is closely related to the word care. If you look at the text, notice what it says in verse 4. Um, It says this, he must be one who, notice, manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then look at verse 5, but if he does not know how to manage his own household, then how will he, notice that, take care of the church of God? So we know that managing is a part of 
taking care. That's how he describes it here, taking care. Now, this is very significant. Many of you have jobs and uh, many of you have bosses. They rule or preside or manage you. But how many of you would describe your boss as one who takes care of you? One who takes care of you as you would your own family. Most would say, well, my boss, he tells me what to do. He takes care of himself. He takes care of the company. And if there's any left over, he might take care of me. That is the worldly kind of leadership where you take care of yourself, you use your position, you use your power, you use your um, might to make it easy on you and harder for others. And that is the worldly mindset. But that is not what it means to be a leader in the church. This word, take care, according to Vine's expository dictionary, the biblical words, is a word that means to take care of something and it involves forethought indicating the direction of the mind towards the object being cared for. In other words, a leader is not one who just flippantly leads, but he thinks about the needs of others and then he plans on how he is going to meet and take care of those needs. It is the same word used of the good Samaritan in Luke 10. Remember, Jesus told the story of the guy who was going along the road and he gets beat up and, and uh, you know, the Pharisee walks by and the Levite walks by and then the Samaritan um, helps him out. Verse 34 of Luke 10 says this, And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them and put him um, on his own breast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, uh, when I return, I will repay you. That is a great example there. It's, it's a matter of understanding a need and having compassion to meet that need and having well-thought-out plans to meet that need and to meet the need. Taking care. And here we see what it means to take care. Now... It is important to note that taking care does not involve giving people what they want. I mean, what if you were to give your kids everything they wanted? One of the little things I do with my kids is, you know, when we're out someplace and, you know, they'll see some really fancy car or some huge house or something, I always say, I think Dad should get one of those. You know what they always say? Yeah! As if I would. The shepherd needs to be wise enough to know the difference between what people think they need and what God says they need. Because a lot of people, like children, do not know what they need. They just think they know what they need. But the elder is responsible to study the word of God so he knows what people need. And this tells us, this whole idea of caring and meeting people's needs, that a leader is a servant leader. He is not one who is a dictator, an authoritarian, a king. He is here to serve the saints. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. 
I want to read you about Jesus here preparing for the Passover, since we're going to have a Passover Seder next week. Now, it has nothing to do with it. Look at verse 24. Following, um, follow what, what's happening here in 24. He says this, And there arose a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Now, this is an encouraging text, isn't it? I mean, these people have been with Jesus for three years. And here, right at the end of his life, they're saying, well, I'm bigger than you are. No, I'm going to be greater than you are. No, sir. You know, I did this for Jesus. Well, yeah, but he took me to the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, but when you were doing that, I went to the city and got his food. And So they're arguing. These are the disciples. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Now, what's interesting is, he says, kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and then he says, and they are called benefactors. Now, this is like just the ultimate sarcastic slam. Lorded over and benefactor are not synonymous. They are antithetical. The Roman rulers were, were wicked and oppressive. They just squeezed the people they they ruled for every dime and penny and bit of labor that they could. They were not benefactors, they were extractors. I mean, they were taking everything they could from the people. And Jesus says, oh yeah, well, you know, these people lord it over, you know, your benefactors. He says, uh, that's one way to do it. But then look what he says in verse 26. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Now remember, in a Jewish context, the oldest person was the one with the most authority. The oldest person was the one who was the leader. He had the rights of the firstborn. He was the one with the wisdom because of the age. But Jesus says, you know how it's usually done? Well, that's not how it is in the kingdom of heaven. You just turn that right upside down. The greatest has to function as the youngest. Not only that, the leader has to be the slave, the servant. It's like, what do you mean? Now, this is in the upper room when you wash their feet, mind you. He says, yeah. Yeah, you've got to be like a slave. And, and the slaves, man, they were just down at the bottom of the rung. And you can imagine what they're thinking themselves. Let's see, the greatest becomes the youngest. The greatest becomes the servant. Now, that is an antinomy. That is strange. That is otherworldly. Then Jesus continues in verse 27. Look at what he says. He says... For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So here here they all are reclining at the table. And Jesus, the Lord, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is serving them. And he says, so who's greater? Well, in the worldly 
way of thinking. It's the people who get served. You know, the king gets served. But here, the king is serving. You see the difference there? He totally unravels the common concept of leadership. And he says, you got to be one who serves. This is what it means, one who manages and takes care of his own household. It does not mean one who is the authority, one who orders the wife around, one who just orders the kids around, one who has everybody serving him, but he doesn't serve anybody else. It means to be a servant to your your family. It means to teach your kids. It means to help your kids understand the Word of God, show them what it means to work, teach them the Scriptures, teach them the doctrines. Help your wife, encourage your wife, serve your wife, make it easier on your wife. Do homework with your kids, whatever. And the word well qualifies the quality of care every elder is to exert over his household. In the Greek, there are two words for good, translated good or well. One is just kind of a moral goodness. and um, It's kind of intrinsic, inherently moral, practical good. Then there is another kind, which is kalos, the word used here, which is an intrinsic good that is visible externally, aesthetically good. And that's what he says here, something which is not only internally good, but externally good or beautiful or excellent. And he says, this is what he means. One who manages his household in such a way that people can look at it and see the beauty of that household. See its moral goodness by observing it. An elder must be one who manages his household in that way. He has to be that way. And this tells us that in the church, manage your household would be important because you're showing people how they need to manage their household. They need to look at your household and see how they should manage theirs. Now, that is a scary thought, isn't it? I remember, we've we've always had people live with us. Um, When we first got married, we had people living with us, college students and Different, we lived with another couple for a while, and we've just always almost had people living with us throughout the years. And, and frequently people tell me, oh, I could never do that. It's like, why not? Well, I just don't know if I could handle somebody just being in my home all the time. And, you know, I don't say anything. But in my mind, I'm thinking, why not? What would they see in your home that you wouldn't want anybody to know. And then I feel like saying, well, you need to have somebody live, you know, live in your home so they can tell us what's going on in there. <laughs> no, you would not expect that every man would have all of these characteristics that Paul lists here, but you must demand that every man who lead the church have these characteristics. It is required of all elders that they have these things as characteristics of their lives. You see, the church has a lot of things that need to be done, an incredible amount of things to be done. You know, sometimes it would be very helpful for people to come to see what an elder meeting is like and to be in on all the emails of all the garbage that gets shuffled around between the elders 
it is, it is a lot. I mean, we, we have killed a lot of trees with paper that we've had to use. I mean, we, we come out with elder meetings like with a book of just memos and letters and, and agendas and, and financial reports and, and things that we're dealing with and prayer sheets and just gobs of stuff. And the whole point is, is the church is a huge responsibility. It has many things that a leader must do. So many things that if he's not controlled at home, if he doesn't have his home life laid out, he can't do it in the church. He just can't do it. Because it's a greater, larger, bigger responsibility than he would ever have at home. I mean, home is just cakewalk compared to the church. And one of the things I like to tell elders to do, one of the things I like to tell seminary students to do, is do a little exercise. And you can do this sometime if you want to be scared. (laughs) Sit down and read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus real slow. And every time, now those three letters are just written to pastors, elders, so that they know what they're supposed to be doing in the church, what is primary, what is secondary, and some things aren't even mentioned, which tells you a lot. But he's writing to pastors so they know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, what should be emphasized and what shouldn't be. And so I said, just read through them, and then just have a yellow pad, and just write down, you know, are supposed to do this, are supposed to do this, are supposed to do this. And I'm telling you, it's scary. It is very convicting. When you write down everything that is required of leaders, it becomes obvious how important sound doctrine is. How important biblical teaching is. How important it is to apply God's word to every single aspect of the church. And most of the qualifications of the elder are moral qualifications, but it is interesting that in the list that we are looking at in 1 Timothy, the two qualifications that actually talk about doing something are able to teach and taking care or managing one's household. Now, I just went through, I've done this many times just to remind myself when what I'm supposed to do. You know, you always get people telling you should do this and 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 it never stops. And so when that happens and I start thinking, wait a second here, I'm losing my bearings. I just decide I'm going to let God tell me what to do and I'm going to do what God wants me to do regardless of what the people want me to do. Now, for those of you who are elders, you're going to need to hang on to your pew here. Now, just listen to this. Now, as I read these, I want you to listen. This is just from 1 Timothy. I want you to think how many of these things relate to sound doctrine and teaching. Now, just listen. He says this. An elder, a leader, must be instructing men not to teach strange doctrines. He must avoid myths and genealogies, have as the goal of His instruction, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Be constantly serving, be constantly evangelizing, be fighting the good fight, keeping faith, keeping a good conscience, being praying for the lost, be praying for rulers, lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, pray without wrath and dissension, do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over men, make sure every elder is above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money, a good manager of his household, one whose children 
are under control with all dignity, not a new convert having a good reputation with those outside the church. Know how God wants the church to conduct itself when they gather for worship. Make sure the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Believe and know the truth. Do not forbid marriage or eating certain things. Be pointing out these things to the brethren. Be a good servant of Jesus Christ by constantly nourishing yourself on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. Follow sound doctrine. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Do not let your temporal physical fitness take precedence over your eternal spiritual fitness. Labor and strive to fulfill your calling. Have your hope fixed on the living God. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down in your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity show yourself an example for those who will believe. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and, and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Play close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger sisters, uh, younger women as sisters in all purity. Prescribe these things as well. Only honor widows who are widows indeed. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. Let elders who, are, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Elders who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Maintain these principles without bias. Do nothing from a spirit of partiality. Do not put people in leadership too soon and thus share in the responsibility for their sins and others. Keep yourself free from sin. Teach and preach these principles. Be content. Flee from greed and worldly things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instruct those who are rich not to be conceited or fix their hope in the uncertainty of riches but on God. Instruct the rich to do good and be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly arguments and knowledge. That's all from 1 Timothy. I don't know about you, that just makes me want to just crawl away to get under some stone and beg for mercy. That is a scary little list there. That's 50 things from just 1 Timothy, let alone 2 Timothy, let alone Titus, let alone all the other texts which address leaders in all the rest of the Bible. It's a huge responsibility. And that's why Paul says, if you don't have your family life under control, you can't manage the church of God, period. And so often we put people in the leadership because they're good guys. Because, oh, so-and-so, he's doing good in his business. So what? I want to know what his family's like. I want to know what his wife is like. I want to know what his children are like. That's enough of that one. As Howard Hendricks says, that's way too convicting. Let's move on. All right, the second thing is an overseer must be one who has obedient children. Look at the text again and notice what it says. It says... He must be one who is keeping his children under control with all dignity. Now, this is part of or a subcategory of managing one's own household. And again, the elder's children represent the elder himself. 
if you want to see what kind of shepherd he is going to be in the church, you look at his children. If his children are ignorant of the scriptures, if his children don't know sound doctrine, if his children aren't obedient, if his children are not submissive, then what? Neither will he be able to fulfill that necessary role in the church. Have you ever seen someone walking their dog, or rather being walked by their dog? You know, they're walking and they've got some brute of a dog kind of jerking them around, and they're, they're this thing is, they're holding back, and you know, you're just wondering if the leash is going to snap. And the dog is just jerking them around, and you're just thinking, man, that person needs to train that dog. You walk by it, and this big slobbery thing's all over your leg. Get back from me. And then you see somebody else walking down the sidewalk, and their dog isn't even on a leash. I had this English sheepdog, and its name was Poke. And you could never see its eyes, but they were under there somewhere. (laughs) And this dog would just stay right there. I would do this, and it would walk around in a circle if I turned around. If I ran, it'd run. If I stopped, it stopped. If I backed up, it'd back up. I never put it on a leash. This was perfect. It just was right there. It wouldn't even bark unless I told it to. And you see somebody with a dog like that, you know something. They paid somebody a lot of money to train that dog. <laughs> Yes, sirree. You know, you go to dog obedience school, it has nothing to do with the dogs. It's master obedience school. The dogs are just trying to just, just be consistent. Tell me what to do. And you know by the someone's dog what their master is like. Our text tells us the ability of a man to manage his own household will be seen in the lives of his children. And the phrase under control is literally under submission or obedient. The word having is a present active participle, which means it is the characteristic of his children to be in submission. It doesn't mean that they never sin or they never go astray or they never even have times in their life where they might be characterized by a time of rebellion, but it must not be the normal characteristic of their life. Because if it is, he can't be an elder. He just can't be. As long as children are under the household, notice he must be one who manages his own household. That means as long as the children are at home, they need to be under control. They need to be submissive. They need to be obedient, behaving with all dignity. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, said, A father's leadership must be done in such a manner that the father's firmness makes it advisable for the children to obey, that his wisdom makes it natural for the child to obey, and that his love makes it a pleasure for the child to obey, end quote. 
The word dignity in this text, some have said, refers to the Father. It's really hard to say. There's about half and half argument. Some people were saying this. Some people interpret this past that, that the elder or the man qualified for leadership must be one who manages his own household well and with all dignity keeping his children under control. So it relates to the elder being dignified. And the reason they use that is because it's one of the qualities used of deacons to follow. But others, uh, like myself, and again, it's almost a toss-up, would see it as dignified is the behavior of the children. The reason I, I believe this is because of what Titus says. Um, in the parallel text in Titus, Titus um, gives, doesn't just say must have children who believe. That's what the, 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 the term that uh, Titus uses, actually believe or faithful. He says they must be those who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So he adds on an additional phrase, so I think that's how it should be here, but you can believe it the other way. Either way, they need to be under control, submissive. And Titus does crystal clearly say, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So if your children are typical PK kids, if you don't know what that means, pastor's kids, you aren't a pastor. That's all. That's all. You can't be a pastor if your kids are accused of dissipation or rebellion. They must be faithful or believing. And some have tried to take that, that phrase believing in Titus 1.6 as, as they must be saved. And there's some problems with that. First, what about the el- elder who has young children who, who haven't come to faith yet? I mean... Do, is he not qualified until his children get to be, you know, 8 or 10 or 12 and give their life to Christ? And everybody else is disqualified who has no children or children who are so young you don't know whether they're saved. There'd also, you would have to conclude that every elder who maybe started serving and then had children, he would have a guarantee that his children would be saved since he was qualified and gifted to be an elder. And, of course, this isn't true. And finally, we can't know for certain if anyone is saved. I mean, how do you know if someone's saved? Well, you can say, well, they look like they're saved, and they say they're saved, and they act like they're saved, and they do as they're saved. But many people have done that, have then fallen away from the faith and gone apostate. So the best way to interpret it is faithful, reliable. He must have children who are faithful or reliable, not accused of rebellion or dissipation, under control with all dignity. If he's not, then he can't lead the church. That's all. That's just a qualification that must be met. You drive by a person's house, you look at their yard, you know something about that person. You know about their priorities of the yard. What does their yard tell you? Their yard tells you about their priorities of doing their yard. That's all. You look into your child's room. Is it neat or is it falling apart? What does it tell you? It tells you about the priorities of room cleaning. You look at the sink and the dishes. What do you know? Well, if they're always cleaned, you know, when I grew up, my mom having eight kids was just frantically washing dishes all the time. And even now when I go to visit, I, I uh, you know, like yeah, if you make coffee or tea, you set your spoon down after you stir whatever, set it down, you turn away, and then you go back to get another cup. Well, where's my spoon, Mom? I washed and dried it and put away. I mean, it's on the counter for about 10 seconds, and it's gone, taken care of. 
There's just a constant need to do that. And you see what is a priority and what is a not. It was not a priority by looking at a person's life. And when you look at their children, that's where you really get to see a priority. You get to see how a man's going to shepherd the church by how he shepherds his children. How he spends time with them. How he loves them. How he pours his life into them. Whether he neglects them or not. Whether he's merely authoritarian but with no love, no no practical instruction. And some of you may be new to Christianity and maybe you are new to parenting and, and maybe you are wondering, you know, well, yeah, you know, it'd be great to have, a, you know, little perfect cherub angel children. But how do you get those? You know, not everybody's lucky like you are, you know, to, to have children who are born without a sin nature. Well, I want you to know that uh, all children have sin natures and no one is lucky and good children are made, not born. Good, obedient, faithful children are the result of hardcore, persistent commitment in the lives of both parents. And I just want to give you four little principles of parenting here. It's really tempting just to go off on this, but from some other text we will. But let me just give you what I think are four basic fundamental principles that all of us who are parents need to consistently apply in the lives of our children if we want them to be the kind of children that qualify men for, for the office of an elder. First, be a godly example yourself. This is the most important thing. The most important thing. If your children do not see you reading the Bible, they are not going to read the Bible. If they don't see you pray, they won't see you pray. If they don't see you talk about God a lot, they aren't going to talk about God a lot. They don't see you witnessing to people, they aren't going to witness to people. That's all. You make your children what they are by example, first and foremost. I have known parents who have done a lousy job Raising their children, not disciplining them, being way too lenient with them. And when those kids got to be right about college age, they just, it's like something happened and they just fell right into line. Because their parents modeled godliness the whole time. Now, I don't recommend doing that. But I'm just saying that these parents were so godly, so committed, so faithful, so disciplined in their personal walks with the Lord and serving the church that when their children, who were just hellions, got to be college age, one at a time, they just, it's like they just came out of it because of the example of their parents. One study discovered that if mom, both mom and dad attended church regularly, 72% of their children would attend regularly later on in life. If only dad attended faithfully, 55% of the children would remain faithful to attend church later in life. If only mom attended church regularly, 15% would attend church regularly later on in life. And if neither mom or dad attended regularly and they just sent the kids, only 6% remained faithful. That's, you know, not very good. The second thing is love your wife. 
Not only do you need to be a godly example and live what you want your children to become, you need to love your wife. Paul tells us that the way a husband loves his wife tells the world how Christ loves the church. That's what he says in Ephesians 5. And so what do people see about Christ and how he loves the church from you and how you love your wife? Be a godly example, love your wife. Third, be diligent in your biblical instruction. Deuteronomy 6-7 is probably the greatest parenting verse in all the Bible. Speaking of God's commandments, he says, You shall teach them diligently, there's the effort needed, diligently, to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, which means all the time, all the time. Not the weather, not the Mets. You talk about God's word and bring it into your conversation all the time. You teach them important things. What does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? What happened when Jesus died on the cross? What's heavens like? What's hell like? What happens to people who don't obey God? Um, Why do people do things the way they do? What does God say we need to do? How do we live by his truth? How do we walk in the spirit? You teach your children those things. Because if they don't know those things, then how can you expect them to be godly believers? And of course, that implies something, doesn't it? You've got to know those things first. If you don't know those things, how can you teach them to your children? The fourth thing, not only do you need to be a godly example, not only do you love your wife, not only do you be diligent in your biblical instruction, but you need to be diligent to discipline your children. You need to focus on the heart when you do this and not just external obedience. You know, so often we're just we're content with actions. You know, take out the trash. Trash is taken out with a grumpy heart. That is disobedience all the way. There's got to be a willingness to take care of the trash, take out the trash. Why? Because they know it's their job. It's not that the trash has to be taken out because of their love for you, because it's something that has to be done in every household, because they're part of the household, because this is what God's called them to do, because God has made you their mom and dad, and they are your children, and children to obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right, you know, all those reasons. And so when you ask them to do something, they need to do it. And if they don't do it, you need to discipline them diligently. Listen to Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. Hates him. Hates him. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. There is the biggest lies circulating in the world today that, well, if, if you love your children, you're not going to say no to them. It, it might hurt their psyche. I mean, it could bother them. No. If you don't discipline your children, you hate them. You hate them. They must learn that there are consequences to disobedience. You know, when they get older and they're thinking, you know, I might rob a bank. I went to the teller. She had a lot of money and I need some money. I could just rob the bank. You know, when I was younger and I stole things from my sister, nothing happened. Oh, they spoke to me, but I didn't get in big trouble. When I stole things from my neighbor, when I did this or when I did that, you see... You are teaching your children how to live under God and in society. 
that there are consequences for disobedience. You know, we see all these shootings. I just looked at a website. Somebody sent me a link that just listed all the shootings in all the public schools. And I love to just listen to the dialogues about what's wrong with the kids and what's wrong with this and whose fault is it. The parents! The parents are not teaching their children to submit to authority, to respect other people. To know right from wrong. And mind you, many of them are unbelievers, so they don't know. That's where the blame falls on the parents. They made them that way by not bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They don't know right from wrong. Their sin natures have taken over. They've been given a free reign, and they just go hell-bent. And what you're seeing is the outcome, the symptom of the root problem where two loving parents have not poured their lives into training that child from a very young age. And now you're just seeing the end of the line. Your children learn to obey God out of love when they learn to obey you out of love. And when they love you so much they want to do what you ask, then you will know whether a man is qualified to lead the church. Now, that's just a nutshell of parenting, a little sidelight, but it's important, so I threw it in there. So what do we need to do? Pray for your leaders that they would be men of God. Men of God who are able to take all the responsibilities that God gives them and be able to do them in correct priority, in correct proportion, and do it faithfully. Know that... All of our households tell the world about God, are a witness to the world of how we love God. Our children are billboards which say, this is what it means to be a Christian. Our marriages tell the world in big bright lights, this is how Christ loves the church. And remember... Most importantly, that it begins with you and your love to God and your walk with God and your devotion to God and your wanting to please God out of a heart that loves Him more than anything else. And that is the greatest thing you can do for your family, for your wife, and for your children is to be a man whose heart is completely His. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that... The text before us is there, that it is clear, that, Father, it is scary, as the responsibility for a leader is just way more than any man could bear. Father, we need you, and we need your help. The standard is so high, and we are so low. It is so deep, and we are so shallow. Father, if it were not for your spirit, if it were not for your power, if it were not for your grace, none of us would be able to walk before you in purity and holiness. Yet, you have called us to all of these things, and you have given us all the resources we need. So, Father, may we diligently run the race that is set before us. I pray for all the leaders of the church, Father, that you would give us the wisdom to have our households managed well, that we might be a good witness to the church and to the world. 
of how Christ loves the church and what kind of leader is a true kingdom leader. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.